This is the daily lectionary comments for September 6th. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, this is Elisha and the Shunammite woman. And then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15, where uh, unity and peace is the goal and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is the means to achieve that goal. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, um, let's get, get the picture that Elisha has a servant, Gehazi, and imagine that uh, Elisha, uh, rather than just staying in one place all the time, travels around. And imagine that his travels take him on a, a more or less predictable circuit where he would go to various towns uh, at various times of the year there in, in Israel uh, to minister in whatever way he was, he was needed. And on this circuit, uh, this it takes him through this town of, uh, of Shunem. And in that town, there is a woman whose name we do not know. She is called a Shunammite, which means she is a woman who lives in Shunem. This is in, in north, uh, north central Israel. And uh, she befriends uh, Elisha, whom she recognizes a man of God. And, and she provides him hospitality because he would pass by every now and then while he's on his circuit. And so she became one of his stopping places. Uh, now, it's very clear that she befriended him and provided this hospitality because he was a man of God. Now, what we're to understand here is not that the Shunammite woman was, had some special spiritual radar that was able to detect that Elisha was very special in some way. Uh, without doubt, it's two things at play here. Number one is that she recognized him as a prophet of the Lord, as opposed to a prophet of Baal or some other pagan cult. Remember that Israel is, uh, is still, this whole this land in the north is being contested about, uh, you know, whether they'll follow the, 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 the pagan shrines or the shrines set up by Jeroboam, for example, um, or whether they are going to uh, be faithful to, to the Lord who, who has set up uh, the temple and, and uh, established the, the dynasty of David and so on. So you have this corrupt uh, uh, worship going on in the north. Uh, and, and then you have Elisha, who is a prophet of the Lord. So he's sort of the minority party there. Um, and, and she recognizes that he is a prophet of the Lord. And probably also Elisha was a famous prophet of the Lord. So, you know, he was one of the well-known ones. And she therefore recognized him as especially an agent of God. So anyway, uh, Elisha accepts her, her hospitality and her house does become one of his, his points where he would stop and stay for a while on his circuit. And uh, after a while, he wants to do some favor for her. And so you see this uh, interesting situation where he's using Gehazi basically to go back and forth uh, between himself and this woman. We, we don't know whether there was a language issue here or not. But at any rate, he says, what, what, what can we do for you? Uh, you know, and she doesn't really need anything. That's the thing. It's just, she says, I'm, I'm surrounded by my people. In other words, they're, I'm well taken care of. I don't need anything. Uh, but Gehazi later says, you know, she, she has a husband who's old and she doesn't have a son. Uh, there's no, nobody that's going to be able to take care of her um, uh, whenever her husband dies in her old age. And so uh, uh, Elisha initiates and basically tells her, 
uh, next year you're going to have a son. In which case, she basically pleads with him not to lie to me. In other words, don't tell me something like that if it isn't so. I, I couldn't take that. I mean, this is such a wonderful news to her. But Elisha says it will be so. And of course, it is so. And the child is born. And then uh, the very next thing we learn is that the child, getting a little bit older, suddenly dies. Now, then we see that this Shunammite woman kind of conceals the fact that the child is dead, puts him up in, in Elisha's bedroom on his bed, and immediately goes out seeking Elisha and uh, doesn't tell anybody what's going on until she actually gets to Elisha and begs him. Uh, for help. Well, the long and the short of it is, of course, Elisha raises the child. Uh, so we have a wonderful metaphor here for something that is true in all of our lives, and that is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and then the Lord gives again. But now on this business about raising this child up again, um, most children whom the Lord takes from us, or parents whom the Lord takes from us, or friends that the Lord takes from us, he does not raise up here in this life. The promise of the Lord and the resurrection is we will receive our loved ones back again. He will undo the ravages of death. Okay. But this, so this, like I talk, talked yesterday about the miracles, uh, the miracles sometimes had a message in them and this miracle had a message in it. And the Lord gives the child back. Now, one just general thing I want you to know is that the stories of Elijah and Elisha, there's two parts of them. The one is Elijah and Elisha dealing with the powers that be, Ahab and Jehoram and later Jehu. In other words, the kings, the queens, the powers, the armies, and so on like that. Speaking truth to powers, we might say today, calling the regime to repentance, calling powerful people to return to the Lord their God, um, and castigating the corrupt system that existed in the north. But side by side with this, is this wonderful narrative under the surface about how God loves and cares for widows and orphans and the poor and the oppressed, and, but those who are quietly suffering uh, with economic um, uh, deprival or, or grief or fear but who are faithful to the Lord and how he is gently and quietly taking care of the widow of Zarephath, for example, or the widow who had the oil, her sons were about to be taken into uh, slavery, or this Shunammite woman. We have this uh, story that reminds us that on the one hand, uh, the, the Lord, of course, is the Lord of the nations and guiding all the great things of the earth, but he also cares for the widows and, and the orphans, the poor, the oppressed, all those who are faithful and call upon him, he hears. And we see this very clearly in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and very beautifully here. Right, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. Now, uh, this is a, well, it's become a very controversial section. It should not be controversial at all. It is very countercultural. So it will be very controversial as far as those outside the church are concerned. Those inside the church should not be shocked, horrified, or, or scandalized by this at all. But they, they should recognize that this is exactly what the Christian life calls for. Well, first off, this section begins with, uh, with Paul saying, look carefully how you walk, 
not as unwise, but as wise. The, because the days are evil, he says. Now, several things I'll say here. Number one, the days are evil does not mean the days are filled with ghouls and monsters and all kinds of horrible things. Paul is using evil in a much more general sense, okay? Uh, the evil of our present age is much more pervasive than the monster or the ghoul that we imagine in, you know, movies called like the evil dead and things like that. It, it, it means that the world is not aligned with God. The world is out of joint with God and the kingdom of God. And therefore you must be very, very careful because you are walking in this world and it is not aligned with God. The metaphor to walk is a common metaphor, both in the old Testament and the new about lifestyle, the choices that we make, the way in which we live our lives, how we walk. And it says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, understanding the times that the days are evil. Now, so we Christians need to be careful how we live, recognizing that the world in which we live is not aligned with God at all. And therefore, um, treacherous if we are not wise. Okay. Now, in verse 21, he gives the general uh, admonition to Christians. He says uh, that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A huge theme in the book of Ephesians is unity. The unity of, of, of Gentiles and Jews in one church, the unity of the church under one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all, one Holy Spirit. Um, and now he's talking about the unity of Christians with one another, which brings peace and joy in the church. And the way to get that is by submitting. We could say that the way to get that is by submitting, or we can say the opposite of submitting will, will prevent us from this unity. What does it mean to submit? To submit means to yield, to yield a right or prerogative you have to yield it voluntarily and to yield it for the benefit of another or for the benefit of the whole. That's what's submitting. So Christians have rights and prerogatives and worth and all of that, but these are not given to us by God so that we may use them for our own benefits only. But our rights and prerogatives are also given to us as something to give away from time to time voluntarily for the sake of the better of another person or for the whole. So when Christians do this, they're following Christ's command to the church, the new commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you must love one another. The opposite of this is everybody insisting upon what's theirs and their rights and everything being fair and everything being equal. And, and uh, that, that kind of thing we see in our society routinely, but that does not lead to unity and it does not lead to peace. Paul now turns to the issue of Christian marriage. Christian marriage should reflect the kind of unity that we see in the church. And if Christians are drawn together in unity by Christ, then surely husbands and wives who are Christians should be brought together in an even deeper unity. And that's exactly what he explores here. This very controversial statement, he says, wives submit to your husband as to the Lord. Well, of course, in our culture today, this is just explosive. But what he's really saying here is fairness and equality is not the number one thing with the Lord. In fact, oftentimes it's 
not only not important, it can be destructive to hold on to. So we see that marriage today suffers horribly because husbands and wives are essentially in an eternal battle over you know, who's getting the most and the best out of this relationship. And that leads to nothing but suffering. But what God calls a Christian husband and wife together is unity and peace and joy in that unity. He uses two words for this. Submitting, again, voluntarily surrendering a right or prerogative that you have for the benefit of your husband or for the benefit of the family, the benefit of the marriage. And, and he uses the word love. Love in the sense of self-sacrifice. These are not, they don't mean the same thing, but they are complementary in that they both are, are uh, encouraging the husband and the wife to give up what they have from God for the sake of the other. So the wife is to submit and yield to the husband for the sake of the marriage and for the sake of the husband. The husband, if he has been given the prerogative of, of uh, headship here in this relationship, he is given that prerogative in order to lay himself down for the benefit of his wife as Christ did the church. In other words, he is to offer himself and his own life for the benefit of his wife rather than trying to use his wife uh, for his own benefit. The idea of the head and body image here uh, should be understood correctly as, as, as focusing not so much on who's in charge. I won't say that there's nothing uh, in this image that, that, that treats of that, but the primary understanding is the head and the body form one person. And so a husband and wife have been brought together and they become one, one person. They should act like that so that the head and the body work together for the benefit of one another for the sake of the unity of one person. So the idea isn't so much who's in charge that's in here. But even if you say that the husband's in charge, you still have to say that the husband is in charge for the purpose of laying down his life for the benefit of his wife and the marriage. And all of this in order to mirror the unity that Christ has with the church. He's the head of the church, the church is the body, and together we serve the Lord. So equality, fairness, and everybody having their rights is simply not what the kingdom of God is all about, but peace and joy in the Lord is, and that includes our Christian marriages.